good morning. How are you? No? Okay. Normally good. Okay. Sleep, mostly sleepy then, I guess, if that's happening. Um, yeah, like you said, hi, Ryan uh, Smith. Um, just a few weeks into this new teaching pastor thing, but it's been really fun so far. Uh, last week, uh, my wife uh, and our daughter, Emma, we actually drove back up north to the Reno area for a wedding. Um, and so on Sunday morning, we weren't here. Um, and so it was odd um, how we've just begun kind of this new life in community with you guys. Um, and I was even missing out on uh, being a part of the Sunday gathering with you guys. Um, and, I, and I stuck you guys with uh, Pastor Nate, um, who's one of my favorite guys in the world. I, I, I don't know if they talked about this. For years, I've called him Dad. Um, because he's not that much older than me, but I just call him dad. And this isn't even in my notes. We did a, um, a Christmas party with our staff. Um, this is chewing into the, the little amount of time we already have. And we, uh, we did like one of those little like painting things that you go and do. And so I painted this beautiful Christmas tree last year for my dad, Nate, uh, who's not my dad. Um, and, I, and I signed it to dad, uh, love Ryan, with like the R's backwards and like made it look like it was like from a toddler. And he, to this day, has it in his office. Um, and every time I, I would walk by, um, I, would, I would give my dad a hug. So anyway, it was really fun uh, to have uh, Nate here with you guys in our absence. But I'm excited to be back as we continue uh, in the letter of 1 Peter, uh, this teaching series that we're referring to as The Way of the Exile. If you have uh, your physical Bible there with you, or um, you're going to tap your way on your digital one, that's okay too, I guess. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Today is we're going to be beginning. Over the course of the past few weeks, uh, at the very beginning, in verse 1 of chapter 1, uh, Peter introed the verse by addressing Christians through this uh, two titles uh, that he referred to Christians as, as elect exiles. Uh, elect, being chosen by God and exiles, uh, this experience of being rejected by the world because of our chosenness by God. And so over the course of the past few weeks, we've been really focusing, uh, Peter's been looking at this idea of Christians as an elect people, as us being chosen by God. What does it mean to be people that God has loved and chosen and brought to himself? It means to be a priesthood. It means to be a new temple where people can uh, be in and witness the presence of God. It means to be a holy people. It means to be a loving people. This is where we've been at for the past few weeks. And so uh, this week, what we move into for the next two weeks is where Peter has been focusing on our elect status, us being chosen people of God as Christians. Now he moves to dealing with what does it mean for us to be exiles? What does it mean for us to be, though chosen by God, rejected by the world? How does that uh, bear importance on the way that we engage with our culture and with our world and with our work and our relationships? And so that's where we're going to be at today. Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to read the passage. We'll, we'll go through the whole thing together. I'll pray over us. Um, hold on. Um, it's, it's a, we're going to do a big passage uh, this week. Erin um, was reading over the past part of our discipleship thing. She was reading it yesterday afternoon. Uh, I was outside in the backyard uh, just working on, on the sermon. And Erin's like reading over and she's like, what did you do? <laughs> because it's so much Bible. Um, and it's so many big issues. If you guys have read this week, you're like, oh my goodness. So what we'll do is we'll uh, read it and then I'll pray. And then uh, we're just gonna go a little section at a time, just unpacking what Peter's saying and its importance for us today. Sound good? All right, well, let's look uh, in verse 11 of chapter 2. Let's begin where Peter now moves uh, into uh, writing on what it means for us to be exiles, where he says, Beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's eyes is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Goodness me. Uh, (laughs) Slaves, politics, weaker vessels. Oh my. Let's pray. Um, God, here we stand almost 2,000 years uh, removed from when Peter originally penned this letter. Um, and God, the conviction that we carry as your people is that somehow these words continue to speak truth to us today. And so God, we pray that you would allow us to do the good work of uh, traveling into this text and would you help us to bring out of it uh, what speaks to us today, what's there for us in this moment. God, would you transform us in light of this that we might be faithful exiles and that those in our city Uh, that they might glorify you on the day of your visitation because of us. Speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, let's let's just get into it. As we read over uh, this passage, uh, one of the things that's worth kind of noting for us is as we read over this with our modern eyes, is uh, we tend to think that this is kind of like a, it's like a Jackson Pollock of theological issues uh, that Peter's just like throwing at the wall. He's like, okay, everybody, you know, you submit, and government, and servants and slaves, and what? We don't don't catch what he's doing. 
uh, for Peter in his time uh, and for his audience, these churches spread throughout Asia Minor, it was immediately obvious what Peter was doing. He's writing uh, within a common uh, format of, of writing uh, called a household code. Now, household codes uh, were, were popular with uh, uh, philosophers uh, like Aristotle or Plutarch. That Basically, they were written uh, to men. Uh, normally men who were uh, husbands and masters at a higher level of privilege and status within culture, writing on them for them how to, to order their households, their wives and their slaves, for the sake of the benefit not only of those individual men, but for the sake of the Roman Empire. Rome understood that, uh, that, that a city and a, and a nation is composed of its families. And for them, the best way to do this was we need to have, make sure our men know how to order their homes so that Rome prevails. And so what Peter does is he steals this uh, method of writing, this method of developing a conduct, a way of being in the world, but he flips it all in light of the way of Jesus, much like that bottle just flipped. It's a loud gong that we all hear. Um, I did the same thing a couple weeks ago uh, when Isaac was preaching, so it's totally okay. I'm with you. I feel that. Um, so what Peter does is this new calling and conduct he calls us to, this new household code, as it were, is he setting before these Christians a way of engaging and being in the world that can be summarized uh, as this. And you'll see it behind me so it singes into your brain. Subversive submission is our mission. This is what Peter is writing out here. And with our modern eyes, all we might see is the submission factor there. But we have to see that what Peter's getting at is this sort of submission that at its very root is subversive. It turns over the way of the world by merely existing. And, and on one hand, we can't be on one side or the other. Too much submission, just being okay with the way that the world is going. And we're no longer holding on to our exile identity. And at the same time, we are not called to a military revolution or some kind of blatant standing against uh, the systems and relationships and powers that we find ourselves under and within. He calls us to a subversive submission. And so why don't we just uh, go back into the text and, and we'll just see how this theme develops. Sound good? Verse 11, look back with me, where he writes, again, hitting on this idea of us being sojourners and exiles, and that as such, our identity and our ethic of how we live that out is by two things. He says, by abstaining from the passions, these dishonorable passions that wage war against us, and by maintaining, abstaining and maintaining, honorable conduct among the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the Greek word uh, is ethnos. It's the root of what we get ethnic groups. He's just saying before the nations, he's saying before the nations, keep before everybody that looks at you that doesn't belong to the church, keep your conduct among those people as honorable. And he calls this um, idea of being honorable is what's so profound is that Peter doesn't work in black and white thinking when it comes to morals. You see this is by saying keep your conduct in what they would identify as moral means that there's some shared overlap Venn diagram that's happening with the morals of the world and the morals of the church. There are obviously some things that are outright different from the way of the world, but this is not pure black and white thinking, that everything going on outside of the, this room right now is you know, falling apart, although it is. But as created in, in God's image, we carry within us an innate sense of justice and righteousness that we celebrate it when we see it most of the time. And so what he says is look for these areas where there's an overlap of moral concern, of good works, and lean into those things. This is a scene, I mean, uh, coming into being a part of Collective, getting connected with some of our uh, ministries that we partner with. One of them is, is Chrysalis that um, 
works to help those in our city uh, that are currently suffering homelessness to become self-sufficient and to find work and to develop out of that. We partner with them on a regular basis, and yet this is a group that doesn't inherently identify with any faith in particular. We're, we're finding what are those things that are honorable that we as human beings all agree to, and how do we partner with them? It's cool. David uh, Herman is a, one of the guys, a part of Collective, and in my discipleship group, uh, we went and saw Manchester Orchestra last night for their 10-year anniversary. This, it was so good. And Travis went with us. It was so good. And Sophia's girlfriend. It was awesome. Manchester Orchestra, if you haven't, The River um, off the Everything and Nothing album is incredible. Um, sorry. I went to David a couple weeks ago, though. <laughs> uh, to, uh, he invited me to go to this event, this uh, tech and homelessness event over in Santa Monica. Um, and it was this cool, I mean, it was free tacos, so I wasn't going to complain no matter what. Um, but it was so cool to gather with all of these different people from our city and actually from outside uh, other cities where people are using their God-given gifts within technology and thinking through issues and problems and setting that towards the homelessness issue within our city. And there were some people that you start talking to them and, and you realize, oh, wait, you're a Christian, right? And other people, oh, you're not. But, there was, but it, was, it was this cool, I think this is exactly what Peter's calling us to is that we don't see the church as the only place where we do good works um, or think about justice, but we're looking for how do we actively apply this within our city. And we're not, one, we're not saying, you got you know, you to Christian this high before I work with you on something, right? Um, and so he calls us to do this, but what's going on there? So here's a submission to the city. There's a submission to the, the people that are around us and what they view as honorable. And yet the whole purpose of that is not just for the sake of doing those works. What, what does he say right after this? In verse 12, he says, specifically so that they may not speak against you as evildoers, but then the reverse is, is that they may glorify God on the day of his visitation. What is it? They become Christians. They become followers of Jesus. They glorify God. And so the whole work of doing good works, the whole work of uh, abstaining from these dishonorable passions that are waging war against you is for the sake of people seeing the glory of God in you and praising that they themselves becoming Christians. It's evangelism. It's a lifestyle evangelism is what Peter calls his people to. And evangelism gets a bad rap today um, because we don't think that we should uh, put our um, values or our beliefs on anyone else. And there's a whole other conversation about that um, and just why that, that we don't do that with anything else. Like, you don't, you know, like, don't force your Netflix opinion on me. People do that all the time. Like, we tell people about what's, what's good um, and what means something to us. And Peter invites us to do something like that, even more so when it's news about how the world is being changed. So anyway, he calls for our conduct. Um, it is not something that we never teach about Jesus, as we'll see in the later passages in chapter three. He says to always be ready to give a defense uh, for the hope that you have. So Peter obviously have some sense of teaching and talking about it, but your good works and your conduct within the world, the sort of person that you are and the justice that you do is the kind of, pulpit from which you teach and people about Jesus and tell them. And so Peter is calling for this subversive, we're moving this world over into the kingdom of God, submission. The way that we do it is not shoving Jesus down anyone's throat, but by being the sort of people that show what his kingdom of justice and grace and goodness look like. And so the first place that he moves, and now he's going to apply that logic in different areas, is everything else that he's going on. This submission and subversion. Look with me in the government thing. Oh boy, uh, 13, where he says, be subject uh, or, or, or uh, submit yourselves, uh, submit yourselves to, and then he goes on, every human institution, whether it's the emperor or as governors. And so the first thing he calls for is this idea of subjection, of being submissive to uh, this political spectrum that we find ourselves in. 
Uh, which means, I mean, honestly, in Peter's time, he's talking about the emperor and he's talking about governors. For us today, I mean, this applies to um, this applies to our president. This applies to senators. This applies to political parties. Because we're a democracy, this doesn't go just towards uh, those in political power, but to one another. We're all a part of this whole system. And honestly, I, the simple way of how to apply this today in, our, in this moment is, is this. The Christian ethic in response to government and politics and what it means for us to be submissive is that we do not demonize. That we, we, we simply do not demonize one another. That we are called to a different way of engaging where we refuse to participate in a sort of system that looks at the other as the enemy. That we, just, we refuse to participate in that. We see one another as human beings, regardless of how stupid I think your political position is and who you voted for. That I learned to submit myself under the kingship of Jesus, who is calling a people for himself, regardless of what color they stand with. Or third color, because they're cool and they don't belong to a two-party system. Um, we're all very impressed. Um, <laughs> So here's, here's where I wrestle with this, right? Is I, I, this is, I mean, right now in our moment, this is the one that, that, you know, goodness me, slaves. That's what's crazy is we're in a moment where the slaves say, I'm like, yeah, I'll get to that. How am I going to teach on government? Um, so we have this divided moment, um, obviously, that is so polarizing on either, either side. And I think the first thing for us to hear is that we do not demonize. We refuse to see anyone as the quote-unquote enemy. And, and the question that comes up then is, okay, well, what about in, the impeachment that's going on? What about uh, injustice? What about the swamp? You know, it's not going to drain itself. Whatever side you're on, how do I honor them? Someone that is quite dishonorable from my perspective. I would just say, uh, I think Peter, Peter would, I think, identify that we are in a difficult moment, but at the same time, I think he would laugh at us a little bit. He writes at a time where Christians are being regarded not as kind of the weird coworker, but as barbar- barbarians, as people that are bringing a sort of uh, anti, uh, uh, it's almost an anarchy. They would be called anarchists. They would be called atheists because they would refuse to take on the gods of Rome. And so because of that, people would not do business with them. People would not welcome them into their homes. It would be hard for them to do commerce in the trade. Th- this is what they're going through. Even more than that, the the political system and the government, that there would be laws that would be in place for citizens that would be relaxed or that would be ignored for the sake of what belief they have. This is what they're suffering and undergoing, is feeling like everybody's saying that we live in this incredible Roman country where everything is free and citizens have an incredible place of prominence within the culture, and yet there are laws that are being forgotten and relaxed and outright ignored as Christians left and right, are being mistreated. Even more than that, in just a couple of years after Peter's letter, uh, Nero would come to power. And Nero was a psychopath to make whoever, whatever president you think of, uh, look look like a toddler. Um, I mean, like killing spouses, um, castrating servants just for the fun of it. He burnt down half of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians specifically so that he could round them up and basically committed genocide where men, women, and children were fed to lions. And what's profound is the fact that Peter's letter stood for those Christians as much as it does for us today. And somehow they were able to honor the emperor while, while being killed by him. It's a difficult 
uh, thing to wrestle with, no doubt. And I'm not trying to give Peter's uh, experience as kind of a, like, shut up and don't wrestle with it, like, get over it. Um, I'm not, I hope I'm not doing that. My, my, my desire is simply to show you that the way of, of the Christian response is that we just, we refuse to participate in this sort of a thing. And we'll, t- we'll take the brunt of, of however it means, and we're going to always choose to see the image of God in another. And so we, we don't demonize. But at the end of the day, this submission to structures and individuals where we don't demonize, um, is it, demonization is only a symptom of our idolization. You demonize that which is not your God. And, and what the subversive work that Peter is doing here is he's also saying that we don't idolize when it comes to politics. The subversive movement is that in Rome, uh, the emperor was, uh, quote unquote, on par with God. I don't know what he did, quote unquote, but on par with God. That he was seen as not just a political leader, but also um, a semi-divine being that was leading over the people of Rome. And so there was a worship of the political system. In much the same way today that we need this subversive bite because we tend to place all of any hope for justice and righteousness happening in our world on the shoulders of the politicians that we put in place. If justice is going to happen, then it must mean him or her getting into office. And so Peter calls in this subversive way that it's, it's just laced. I mean, from the jump, be subject for the Lord's sake. Why are you subject to Caesar? Because God told you to, not because of anything Caesar has. Two, he says, for every human institution, which in the Greek is a little messy, Peter does that sometimes, where you could translate as human institution or you can translate it as every human creature. He's about to call Caesar a human creature, worthy of honor, but a human creature. In the same pen stroke there at uh, the end of verse 17, the same pen stroke, he uses the same, same like line and verse and the same command for what everyone gets. Emperor, everyone, honor. Barista, emperor, honor. Homeless on the street that you walk by, President of the United States, honor. And so on one hand, it's, it's, it's subversive. He is flattening the status pyramid of Rome right now, saying that everyone, slaves, get the same amount of treatment as the emperor. This sort of honor. And I mean, he continues uh, honoring everyone. When he says um, that they're there to punish evil and uh, to, to um, uh, praise those who do good, he's, this is like tongue-in-cheek uh, to the letter. Like I was just talking about, Christians were not experiencing this. So this is, he, what he's saying here is he's identifying with what government should be, what po- whatever this thing should be, what the police should be doing. And yet he's still calling for an honor because in the midst of it, it's it's this tongue-in-cheek, subversive way of saying what you guys should be doing, what the emperor should be doing, even though he's not. And so Peter's laying out for us this submissive subversion to the structures and the ways of the world. And again, we desperately need to hear this because of the fact that, that what we have going on within a culture is a demonization of one another that only comes out of an idolization of our own party. And we need to remember as Christians, recapture this, that we are exiles in Babylon. And the politics of Babylon might be entertaining. They might be interesting, but they are not redemptive. We place far too much hope in who's sitting in the White House. And and not enough for, for what God's called us to do in the neighborhood that we're in. 
Our allegiance is set on the king, the one who is our true hope, who brings justice through his people and will one day fully bring it to all of creation. And so in the meantime, we're operating within this kingdom, this goodness, this grace, as much as we can, specifically where we can. A way of saying this is if, if we know more about what's going on with Bernie, AOC, who Chick-fil-A is supporting, and Donald Trump than we do about the lives of our neighbors or our fellow Christians, we're missing the point. Throughout history, the greatest works of justice have been done by Christians who start operating and moving towards goodness and mercy and justice, not from who do we get in power, but from where they find themselves. So William Wilberforce, he's an abolitionist uh, fighting against slavery uh, in the UK. For him, he became a Christian as already being a politician, and he started using his political power, but he found that most of the work that he had to do was not within parliament, but within the hearts of the people. Martin Luther King Jr. and the March on Selma, what's going on here is, is, is rather than going after power by who we get in place, a movement is being made by we are going to pattern and prophetically speak against injustice as we see it with the expectation that not only is God at work in this world moving it towards justice, but when people see this picture of Jesus and the oppressed who have done nothing to deserve it, that people get on board for that sort of justice, and that's what changes things. They marked Selma as the, march, as, the, as the switching point within civil rights within our nation. Why? Because on television, everyone finally saw what we're doing. It made a movement. In the same way, this movement of, 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 of working for justice, not trying to get policies necessarily going is our most hope. I mean, partnering with Claris Health here on the west side is instead of, and, and this is, I'm not calling for us not to vote. Like, this is like an Anabaptist movement. All I'm saying is I think we place far too much priority on those things. And so something like Clarice Health, that's great if we're making movement and we're trying to fight for some kind of a pro-life thing. There is a, a, I would argue, a more robust way of doing it than something like what Clarice Health is doing, which is rather than fighting for the political thing, we're gonna make an opportunity to serve the, the, the most marginalized in our society, single mothers, and giving them options and resources and care to help them make the informed decision that we need to make and help walk them through where they need to go. I mean, we saw this. I, this is one of the most profound stories that everyone always, that we just don't know about the Roman church. In the midst of their persecution, like we were talking about, there was a practice in the time of Rome. It was called exposure. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was basically they're, they're a form of, of uh, not necessarily abortion, but infanticide where um, if you had a, a child that was born that uh, maybe you already had enough daughters and you didn't want any more, they were born with a disability. The practice was you would leave the baby outside at night and just let nature kind of do its thing. And it's, we, we look back and we're terrified of how in the world, it's just what they did. And uh, Christians identified that there was something wrong with this. And so they didn't go going, you know, Caesar's door. Excuse me, sir. There's a practice of Christians that they would walk the streets at night listening for the crying of children, and they would adopt these kids in. This is why the Christian church blew up, is we were, we were getting kids faster than we could make kids, just <laughs> adopting left and right, and showing dignity and honor to all people in a way that the culture wasn't. Um, and, and let Caesar be Caesar. And Rome... Now, you know, we can go see the Colosseum, and the Christian church is still going today. 
So it seems like this submissive subversion is actually the way forward, even when we don't feel like it. And all of this is done in the midst of doing, again, it's this evangelistic movement, doing good to silence the ignorance of people. And, and, and this is what he's calling us to. Next, he applies it to uh, servants. And so in verses 14 through 20, he now moves from talking about the government to servants, and, and honestly can be translated in the Greek, um, is doulos, which we translate as servants often, but it's a household slave. You had slaves that did like more manual labor outside, and then you would have household slaves. Basically, we now have the internet of things. Um, you know, you have like, you can tell Siri to do everything in your house. That used to be multiple people uh, that would turn on lights and would, you know, clean your clothes and would cook your food and would turn on the, you know, the, get the fire going at night. And now you just tell, you know, that's why we talk to Siri like she's like not human. It's because we have a propensity towards um, enslaving things. Um, <laughs> in, in the time of Rome, before we had the Internet of Things, um, it was household slaves uh, that were the largest workforce. That was most people in Rome were slaves at the time that Peter was writing this. And, and most of them were either working in the home. It was basically, um, they were operating as either uh, caretakers. Um, and so that means that they were like Netflix today. Um, they were um, doctors in the home, which is like WebMD. You see, we just like, we just replaced it with uh, the internet. Um, and so they were working within uh, these houses uh, with a lot of different work. Some of them were musicians, which is like Apple Music, artists, uh, which is Instagram, doctors, teachers, managers. They had all of this here. Now, uh, two things that need to happen. One is uh, sometimes when we read this, we just want to go to talking about like our employee-boss relations because we don't want to deal with the slavery thing because oi vey. Um, and we'll get there. I think that's a, that's a nice application. We have to deal with the fact that he's talking to slaves. Otherwise, we're not being faithful. And on one level, he's not writing to uh, slaves in the midst of, of you know, what we saw within America, but at the same time, it, it, slavery is slavery. What we have happening is, although it's not ethnic or racial, uh, slaves were made through um, victory in war, that you would bring them and they would become slaves, uh, through kidnapping, them being born into it, or at, at cases of like major debt, you could sell yourself into uh, slavery. Slaves had no legal rights within Rome. Uh, they could be brutally, brutally mistreated. Aristotle, I don't know why people quote these guys like they're good. He said, um, injustice cannot be done to slaves because they're property. How's that for Aristotle? Specifically, female and young male slaves were especially at risk of sexual abuse. So this is, this is you know, not, you know, you working, you know, at, at Blue Bottle or whatever. This is, we're dealing with something else that's going on here. Now, what's so profound is that Peter calls slaves and servants to be subject to their masters, which grates us the wrong way. Why would he not call for revolution, right? Like, slavery is wrong, Get your pitchforks, right? Kill your masters in their sleep. We're going to turn over Rome in, in a weekend, right? Why doesn't he do this? Why not revolution? It seems to me that what Peter is doing is he would rather encourage those in pre-existing situations than ramble about how slavery is wrong, something that all of these slaves know. And no one is in the room within this early church to be able to do anything about it. And so he's like, I've got a limited amount of papyrus here. I would rather encourage those where they are than move in some direction of trying to just ramble on against the masters, none of which are here in the room. But Paul does that later on where he'll deal with that, but, but Peter not here. And so what he's doing is he's trying to encourage them to be subject, to walk in the way of Jesus in the midst of what they find themselves. But he does this in a subversive way. Oh, man. So like I said earlier, these household codes were written in such a way that they were written to men 
who are masters and husbands for how they subject their house underneath them. Peter is one of the only, uh, other than like other places in the Bible, the Bible is one of the only places that we get the author addressing those parties. Ident- saying, you, I'm ident- you are a person and I'm talking to you. I'm giving you a, a moral uh, freedom in this. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm calling you to this. This isn't just for the man to, to push you down. This is for you to enter into as you find yourself here. He even gives them grounds to disobey. There's a subversive work here, specifically when it goes against who their, their ultimate master, their ultimate allegiance is to. And so this might be in cases of, of calling for them to commit sin or rejecting the sexual advances of their master, refusing pagan worship. Peter's encouraging them to, as much as possible, in the overlap, be a good servant. And when it contrasts, how to, how to bear consequences in that way. And so it's hard for us, but... We need to see that what Peter's doing is he's establishing a movement that within Christianity, what we see now where we, 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 uh, are, are, where we, get, um, we gawk at the idea of slavery, oh my, is because of what Peter developed here. That if it wasn't for the Christian movement, slavery would still be at work within our world. Uh, Moyer V. Hubbard, what a first name, writes in Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, Uh, Slavery uh, in the Roman world uh, was perhaps the most pernicious and pervasive social evil facing the early church. Modern Christians, that's you and me, were right to be concerned that slavery was not pinged by the moral radar of the earliest Christians. However, there are also clear indicators that the Christian faith, as articulated by Peter and other New Testament writers, could not coexist with the institution of slavery. The vision of the church as a community in which slave and free were obsolete categories, Galatians 2.8, was not conducive to the institution of slavery. And so then, to the extent that this Christian vision of humanity affected the larger society, and it did, slavery would become increasingly untenable. So what Peter's getting at here is he's moving for a subversion that goes after the heart, after who is Lord. For Peter, change comes not solely through revolution of policies, but through a repentance of those in power. And so although none of us here are slaves, how do we work through this? And what Peter's doing in asserting the dignity of those in slavery and those at work. For some of us, yes, you can apply this to you at work. And I think that is a, a valid application of the text. Think through this. Are you an honorable employee? Christians should be the best workers in the world, specifically because that, that is one of the platforms from which we can teach the Bible to people and show them Jesus. Totally an application. Don't be a bad employee. That's not helping anyone. At the same time, I want to keep our focus on Peter subverting slavery and what that means for us today, where we find ourselves. And so the thing is, is it's easy for us to gawk at the fact that Peter is speaking to, to slaves. And, and I would just argue that, that the reason why we do that is because Peter's, what Peter establishes here has been rung true for the past 2,000 years. We're receiving this sort of vision of humanity coming forward and have 2,000 years of growth that now we're able to do that. At the same time, um, I would argue um, we, we probably need to take it slow when we go against uh, slavery and masters stuff here because in many ways, um, I, we find ourselves as the masters today. Uh, being, I mean, in, 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 the, in the West, uh, Los Angeles, most of you make a good amount of money. Uh, you guys have more shoes in your closet, more clothes. I mean, the, the, quote, the masters of Peter's day 
would drool to think about the, the incredible things that you and I have. Shoes, more than we need. Clothes, more than we need. Uh, food, exotic, carted in from all over the world, more than we need and more than we can even consume. And technology, uh, phones in our pockets that are, that are, you know, we all upgrade every year for, you know, oh, it's got three cameras on it now or whatever. I can, <laughs> I can log in by scanning my nose instead of my whole face. Like, we all have... And I would just say that what's happened within our culture in the midst of these shoes and clothes and tech and food, all these kind of things, is that slavery hasn't truly been abolished in our world. We've just moved it to where we don't have to see it. We've outsourced the conditions of slavery. And so we have more clothes than we need, more shoes than we need. We uh, even even have, just um, with pornography and sexuality, um, we, we, have, we have before us things that the masters of Peter's day would have um, died over. And it's built on the back of, of modern day slaves. And so it's a, it's a requirement for us as Christians then, not as people in the slave posture, but in the, in, the, in the master place of what am I going to do in light of the dignity that the gospel calls me to give all people? If outlet store prices mean that I'm getting it from someone who works in, in, in slave-like conditions, then I'm not sure that cost is worth it for me. If I'm, if I'm going to rail against, uh, well, we'll get to me too in a minute. Um, I, I, this is what Peter's calling us to, is, is, is this sort of a thing where we, we identify the fact that we are, we are the masters of today. And so what does that mean for us in the way that we carry our privilege and how we spend our money and how we give our time? So we're called to take the gospel in our vocation and to apply it in all areas of life where we uh, consider the working conditions of those that we're purchasing from, where we lean towards contentment rather than consumerism, these dishonorable passions that wage war not only on our souls but on the souls of others in their lives. Peter continues, now moving into marriage, where he says, likewise, which means in a similar manner, which means he's not calling for Uh, wives to submit in the same way as servants to their masters, but in this idea of a subversive submission, likewise, he says, wives, he calls for them to be subject uh, to your own husbands, to honor, to respect them, to call them Lord is what it says. And then in husbands, in verse seven, he, he talks about honoring and understanding them. There's this submissive work here. Now, again, like all of this, so much of what's going on here is we're going, it's like we're going to Paris, Right? And um, everybody's going to be speaking French, and it would be wrong for me to walk around and ask, and, and like being mad about why people don't speak English, and like where's the McDonald's, right? Um, that would be a cultural appropriation, and it would be insensitive for me to expect that out of, out of uh, the French if I went to Paris right now. In the same way, we're going to another place right now. We need to allow the customs and the culture of that day to be there and be okay with that. And so I would just say this language of... Um, uh, calling her husband Lord, it's Sir, um, is kind of a, a what it would look like in our day. We again, I like, I get uncomfortable about the idea of my wife calling me Lord, um, unless I'm wearing my Darth Vader mask, uh, <laughs> which I don't have. I have a K2SO one. Um, uh, that, that's weird. Um, it's totally weird, and that feels like icky to us today. Again, like with the slavery servant thing, there's a trajectory Peter's setting up here that we're going to see, but um, 
just what, all he's getting at is he's just these these wives, based off the context and the culture that they live in, they they treat their husbands with respect and honor. Specifically, again, like the the, the servant with the master that's not a Christian, like the citizens with a government that isn't a Christian. He's speaking to wives whose husbands are not Christians. So he's calling them to this, this dignity, this, this honor of them. And he's not writing to the husbands for how to subject their wives. He's writing to women as moral agents, as free women, calling for them to su- choose to submit themselves under their husbands for the sake of subverting, actually, them. Aristotle, once again, I mean, he would talk about how, no, it was Aristotle, it was Plutarch. Uh, Plutarch uh, wrote, that um, women um, not only are inferior to men, like just full stop, um, but also that they should have the same gods and the same friends as their husbands and not have any other um, gods or friends. Um, Peter here (laughs) affirms her friends and affirms her God and calls for her to be most faithful to that God, even at the expense of, of her allegiance to her husband. He's subverting the whole system here. Peter is affirming their equality later on in verse 7 where he talks about the wife being a co-heir of the grace of God with the husband. He is flipping the status, whatever, of Rome on its head. He's subverting the whole thing. And how do he does, I mean, oh goodness me, what all does he do here? Um, So wives, they submit uh, to their husbands, and in doing so, it's the pathway through which they can subvert and bring their husbands over without a word. Later, he says, though, that everyone should always be ready to give an account. So what I think is he's not saying, you never speak to your husband or, like, tell him about Jesus. What I'm honestly thinking is the way that you love and treat your husband, who's not a Christian, becomes the platform for which you can tell him about Jesus. And it's the same thing that he's calling everyone else to. I mean, it's just, it's so, everything that we have in our culture today that we like approve and enjoy, the moral overlap, so much of it is from here. Here, he identifies and values women for more than their body and what they put on it. He's he's saying, by this, don't let your adorning, he's like, don't do your hair and don't wear jewelry. He's saying, what, what those things pale in comparison to who you actually are. In a culture that over sexualizes women, Peter speaks a good word. That there is something glorious and majestic about, about a woman uh, who is doing this work of subversive submission. Culture wants you to shut up and go home for the women, for the wives. Peter says, don't fear anything that's frightening. I mean, Peter, Peter is just applying this work to each of the groups that are the most uh, uh, prone to become oppressed within a culture. And he's calling for them to see where they're at as the place through which they can subvert the whole thing. As a, as a quick side note, that um, for both, um, Olive, how do I say this? Um, in regards to the government, uh, Nazis use these passages to get uh, dissenters to just shut up and agree with them. Uh, slave owners in the American South use this passage to subject slaves underneath them. You need to honor us. And abusive husbands will regularly use this passage to get their wives to stay around. All three of those are damnable offenses of how to use this text. And so I just say that, that what this is calling for is not women to, to, to grin and bear uh, their husband's abuse of them. Um, that sometimes the most honorable thing you can do is give someone over to the consequences of their actions. Oy vey. 
Um, let's get back into what he's actually saying, though. That was a weird side note. Um, even more, uh, subversion in verse 7, and here we are uh, towards the end, is where he says that, that likewise, in the same way, husbands, uh, the guys that normally got all of the household code, pages and pages for how to subject everybody, Peter, they're the last to be talked to. It's like, oh, yeah, by, by the way, and they get one verse. He's just like, oh, by the way. To you guys, what does he call them to? Is he calls them, those that have uh, privilege in the marriage and as such can be applied to those that have privilege in the society and in culture. He calls for them to respect and understand those that society has placed under them, to honor them, to understand them, and to protect them. Application for the home and for those of us with any amount of cultural or societal privilege. Specifically, he uses this, this language that like, Rub, you know, it, it, it was like uh, you could hear the brakes going when we read over it. That he says to honor and protect your wife, specifically honoring them as the weaker vessel. Um, and there's all of these different, I've heard some things like guys are like Nalgene bottles and, and women are like, you know, uh, coffee cups or whatever. You know, they're, 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 they're higher value, but they break easy. I don't know. It's just stupid. Uh, I'm sorry, it's dumb. Uh, also, um, or, or women being, um, like, some, sometimes people refer to this as them being the weaker sex as some kind of moral ability um, or intellectual ability. I, here's what I genuinely think he's saying. I think most wives, most of the time, are not as physically strong as their husbands. And so what Peter's calling husbands to is do not use your strength to impose, to abuse, or to do anything to your wife that you would subject her underneath you. So the whole thing is that for those that find themselves in a position of power, you do not force it down on those that you find under, but you find out how can I honor, respect, and lift up. And he says specifically to do this so that what? Your prayers are not hindered. God always listens to prayers, not if you're a bad husband. Throughout the Old Testament and even in the New, uh, Jesus would say similar in John 9, there's a repeated pattern of those who do injustice to those in society, those that do not hear the cry of the orphan and the widow, those that stop up their ears to injustice. God says he stops up his ears to them. And so Peter applies this specifically in the home with husbands and wives. It's a subversive work that he's doing here. I mean, like, like, the previous sections, we could spend a whole week here, but instead I just thought we'd do all the difficult stuff in one week um, and then give you something to think about while you take your turkey naps this week. And so the, like, like in the previous sections, uh, some application here is what Peter's calling for is first and foremost, uh, this isn't missionary dating. It's not like, girls, go find a guy and win him over by your subject. He says, husbands, <laughs> these are women that have become Christians and, and were already married. And yet now find themselves in that difficult space of I'm married to someone whose gods are not my gods. His community is not my community. Um, so it's not missionary dating. Um, and it's also not calling for um, submission of all women under all men. Um, it's specifically your own husband that women are called to entrust themselves to. Again, unlike Aristotle. Um, so for, for how, how do we comply this? I think there is an evangelistic uh, God glorifying, God bringing people to him way that we can order um, our lives. And specifically, we've seen government, we've seen work and slavery, whatever injustices we find ourselves in, and our marriages. Um, and so some things just to think about. Um, 
If those of you that are here that are married this week, just take a moment, read over the verses, or for the guys, the verse, and then take it much more seriously. Read it multiple times. Maybe that's why Peter only gives us a verse. He's like, he knows he's going to lose us. Um, read over the verse a few times. And just ask yourself, God, would you just show me as, as a wife or as a husband, how can I embody this for the sake of not only loving and honoring my spouse, but also for the sake of people looking in and seeing something worth investigating? Read over for yourself. Don't read over it and tell your spouse what they can do. Um, that's not honorable, and it won't go well for you. Um, and for those of you uh, here that, that, that um, are single, uh, uh, like I said, no missionary dating, but, but even beyond that, um, in, in Peter's time, the majority of people, like the majority were servants, the majority were married. Um, and so he's speaking to the majority classes here. And so what I would say is in, in, a, in a culturally different moment, uh, for those of you that find yourself in singleness, to think through how can you subvert what the culture thinks about singleness based out of submission to God? How can you subvert their expectations about contentment, about community, about joy, and about intimacy in the midst of where you are? See, whether married or single, and, and, or slave or master or you know, emperor or, or whoever, Peter is laying out for this way of submitting within the systems that we find ourselves, but at the same time, not just acknowledging them as good, as finding ways to subvert them. But, but why do we do, why this way? Why, why not revolution? Why not, you know, Peter just like, you know, pickaxes and, and sharp knives, here we go, like et tu brute, we're taking Caesar down. Why, why not? He sets it before us right in the middle of the passage. We read over it. Literally, the, the center of our, our submissive subversion is, is the reasoning why. It's literally at the center. Why do we subject ourselves to, to political rulers? Why do s- servants submit themselves even to unjust masters? Why do wives work within this way? Why do husbands give up their privilege for the sake of honoring and lifting up those that society uh, views as lower? What's he say in verse 21? For this you have been called, subversive submission, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he got reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The reasoning why subversive submission is the way of the Christian is because this is the way of Jesus. It's the way that Jesus himself walked. This way of submitting himself, the king of creation, if there's ever anybody with privilege, goodness me, son of God, creator of all things, and he submitted himself into this human experience becoming bound like a slave, unjustly treated, reviled, suffered, the greatest act of injustice and evil, the one that was perfect, was the one that was murdered like a slave. The perfect Savior, God incarnate, without sin or deceit, was mocked, scorned, suffered, and died. God in Jesus knows the experience of the oppressed. He knows what it's like to suffer under unjust rulers. He knows what it's like to be a slave treated wrongly for only doing good. And the reason why Jesus entered into this way was so that he could subvert everything. Theologian Miroslav Volf, it's not a Star Wars character. Those names sounds like it. He writes, the call to follow Jesus, this is so good. The call to follow the crucified Messiah, 
was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortation to revolutionize them ever would have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. Christians, we are not called to dominion. We are called to subversion and submission. We are called to go the way of Jesus. Jesus who, you can pay a couple dollars right now and you can walk through the Colosseums of Rome. And over the, over the world right now, billions of us are still proclaiming Jesus. Jesus subverted Rome by being crushed by it. Even more, he defeated sin by bearing it on his body, on the tree, his cross. He defeated death by yielding to it. He healed us by being wounded. Do you see the subversive act of what God has done and why there's no way that we could exist within the world in any other way than that? His glory was in his humility. He brought us back with the greatest act of subversive submission. And when we see Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we follow in his footsteps as we walk the way of the exile, the way of subversive submission, trusting that because of the God who judges justly and trusting that the resurrection is true, that his work is a work in the world that we're participating in, that our suffering, our submission, we, we, we come not in a loud triumphant victory, but in the simple way of walking like Jesus walked entrusting ourselves to God that the resurrection is true and that all things will be restored. This is what gave Christians the ability to adopt more Christians than they probably could feed. This is what gave Christians the ability to honor Caesar while lions ate their children. This is the sort of picture of how God exists as he comes into the world and submits himself and suffers for the sake of people that want nothing to do with him. And he did it for you. Outside of the political stuff and as we, or, or marriage or slave stuff, and as we just wrap up, this is what's so profound to us is not that God calls us to subversive submission and that this is the way that he's winning over the world, but that the God who created all things willingly did this for you and for me. Treated like a slave. Beat and wounded by his stripes, we have been healed is what he says, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. See, we, we can never be a part of the kingdom and, and participate in some kind of subversive submission that Jesus calls us to unless we deeply feel that we can trust him and know that he loves us and that we're safe with him. And his cross gives us all the grounds to believe that that's true for him, it's true for us. That even though we may die, the resurrection awaits because of what Jesus has won for us. Let's pray.